What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. Thanks for tuning into the show. My name is Dean, and I'm happy to be joined by my buddy Zach. Zach, what's up? You know, just uh, digging into some trees right now. Yeah. How about yourself? Man, uh, I've been loving this. We, we read this book, and we got to speak with today's guest. Amanda Lewis, incredible author, who really didn't uh, didn't start out as an author, but more of a, a book editor, and then um, found her way into writing her own book, which we talk about a bit on the pod. But yeah, she undertook like this super creative project around trees that eventually f- turned into this book that I'm holding in my hand, Tracking Giants, Big Trees, Tiny Triumphs, and Misadventures in the Forest. And if you get your hands on this book, which you should, because it's a super fun read, super entertaining, um, hyper-local if you're in like the kind of uh, BC area, lower mainland, there's trees in Richmond, our fair city, in Vancouver and onto the island that she goes searching for, these giants, the biggest known tree of a species. Um, and uh, yeah, the book that I hold in my hand is beautifully written, very enjoyable. And on the cover, there's a secret little surprise that you can find too. So uh, I encourage you to check it out and get your hands on this book. It's a good one by Amanda Lewis. Little Easter egg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, such a fun book. Uh, it was such a joy to connect with Amanda as well. I feel like uh, as a kid growing up in, in in Canada, you know, we've always been, I still still feel this way when I'm in the presence of big trees, small trees, you know, a forest or, or a special individual tree that there's, there's an awe that these trees hold. There's stories that they hold. They often feel like, you know, giants or Kings or Queens from, from past times. And, uh, you know, Amanda, there's a lot of books about trees, but this one is a little bit different, you know? Yeah. It's, it's almost like the, I don't want to say anti-hero in a way, but it's like it has a very different approach that I think um, can appeal to everybody. Yeah, yeah. And I think what I really appreciate about it too is the story she tells and and kind of how it starts from one perspective or one, she has one objective, right? She's finding these tracking giants, the name of the book. She's looking for these giant trees, but then starts to see, you know, the forests for the trees. And instead of just looking at, looking for the one, um, kind of seeing the many and it's a beautiful kind of like learning as she goes kind of story and um, yeah I just thought it was very well told and some of the stuff like literally you laugh so hard when you're reading it and other stuff you just you learn all kinds of cool tidbits about uh, our ecosystems and the world around us that we inhabit and yeah life kind of some life lessons along the way too. I've got a little tree story for you, Dean. Let's hear it. Um, so I always go to Pender Island with my my family. I've gone there since I was a, a wee lad. And, um, you know, I perceive the forest there to be one way. Mm. And uh, I think we've talked about this on past pods, but there's this idea of, like, generational amnesia. Like, we don't know... Um, what our grandparents knew to be true can be completely different to what we know to be true. Yeah. Um. So on the island, I'm going to kind of butcher this, but it just kind of shows how things can change. Um, they log the whole island, so there's no original growth left, but there's there's some larger trees. And um, where we rent this cabin, the, the guy that owns it is a bit of a ecologist himself. He um, has a, a business that, uh, you know, a greenhouse business, so he's very 
familiar with with flora fauna and trees and all that and he was telling me that the island originally was 100 percent arbutus trees oh wow and then they were all logged maybe not 100 percent, but the majority of trees were arbutus trees yeah and then all of them all of the trees were logged and then the climate changed because it was all logged and the the kind of biodiversity of the the forest changed and what was a um you know, a a place for Arbutus to grow was no longer. So Arbutus stopped growing there once it was logged and it became mostly, um, I'm trying to remember what it was, uh, mostly cedars uh, started to grow after that. And, and so if you went to Pender, you'd think it's all, all cedars. Uh, but, it, you know, not that long ago, there wouldn't have been any cedars there. Wow. So it's kind of interesting how when you change the atmosphere you know the the soils um it kind of changes what's possible for the future yeah yeah interesting and the arbutus tree is like such an iconic like coastal yes pacific northwest kind of tree that red bark that you can see you know from the water or wherever you are on the island like once you see an arbutus tree you're like ah there it is like, yeah it's such a beautiful tree it's got that soft kind of silky bark yeah 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 it's quite iconic so wow. it is interesting how we change we literally change climates and and change uh kind of growing conditions by when we clear cut these trees you know we think it can grow back to how it was but uh for better or for worse you know it won't be what it was it'll be something different yeah Definitely. And I mean, we've talked a lot before. We've had different episodes on it about conservation and, you know, the the huge trees, the ancient cedars and, you know, some of the the ancient forests here in BC that are being logged and, you know, we're we're losing them. And those those hundreds and hundreds of years old trees, like they don't you like you need centuries to regrow those. Yes. And so to cut one down just seems like such a foolish act. And uh, I guess I guess part of part of the work that Amanda Lewis has done here too is just drawing a mind to not all of these giants, you know, the the giants of the species are far away in some forest. Like some of them are tucked right in the middle of the city and may or may not look that impressive after all. But you know, here they are, and they're they're important to maintain and conserve. We're hoping to get out to find the giant in Richmond. We'll yeah. see if we can make time this week to go seek it out. The other shell road. The other shell road. <laughs> um, I think that'll be a fun little adventure just to see if we can find a champion tree. Yeah. yeah. That'd be so good. That'd be so good. All right. Well, we, we really enjoyed this conversation with Amanda Lewis, and uh, I think you guys will too. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Little More Good. We're excited to sit down today and have conversation with uh, truly a dynamic, a dynamic person. We're just we're just having some pre-pod conversation and having lots of laughs and lots of fun. But we are catching up today with Amanda Lewis, who is uh, a, a book editor, um, but is also a book editor turned author. You wrote a book that we're going to talk about today, Tracking Giants, Big Trees, Tiny Triumphs, and Misadventures in the Forest. Um, but your accolades as as an editor are amazing. Editing um, such books or books from authors like Naomi Klein, uh, John Valiant, who wrote an amazing book here, centered again in the West Coast, J.B. McKinnon, and many others. Um, you've edited books that have gone on to become number, number one national and international bestsellers. So, 
Uh, many of our listeners may not be familiar with you exactly by name, but they might have written uh, much of what you have influenced and inspired. And we are we are excited to um, to talk with you today about what you have written about your book and share it with our audience. And hopefully, um, yeah, here here's some of the stories. You're, you're an incredible author. As I was reading it, I was laughing out loud. Like, honestly, you have such a you have such a good wit to you. And you're a natural storyteller. And the way that you um, talk about your journey through, you know, some adventures and some misadventures while on this quest that you set for yourself um, is truly just like, it's so lighthearted, but at the same time, deeply meaningful. And I always find that when we're laughing, we're most open to learn like profound truths and, and experience things. And so kudos to you for doing a great job. And um, yeah, excited to, excited to get into it. So Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Amanda, we're kind of talking about this before we hit the record, but um, <clears throat> one of the things that I loved most about your book, I think growing up, um, adventure was kind of romanticized as this almost extreme sport. You know, we saw the Indiana Jones movies and the Tomb Raiders, and it was almost this this heroic superhero had to be a gladiator-like human to kind of go on these quests, these adventures to find, you know, treasures in nature, whether it was trees or, or ancient truths. But I, I feel like one amazing thing that your book does is it makes adventure approachable for everyone. It doesn't have to be an intimidating thing. The forest can be um, an accessible and inviting adventure for for everybody. And, and I just wanted to applaud you for that. But maybe also if you could share your experience with with going into nature um, and finding it, you know, it can be a Stanley Park or it can be adventuring into deep forests somewhere in the interior or on one of the islands, um, how it can be an approachable thing for everybody. So I'm a book editor, as you mentioned, and I am not necessarily the most adventurous person, but I decided to take on this really huge project to see these champion trees. And the champion trees are the biggest trees of their species. They're native trees. They grow all over British Columbia, where we all live. And they're recorded in this thing called the BC Big Tree Registry. And when I started this project, I wanted to see 43 champion trees in a year. And I didn't have any adventuring experience beyond just day hikes. And I'd done one bikepacking trip in the Yukon with my friend who we call Adventure Kate because she's like a, a legit adventurer um, and she's like bike the Silk Road and she's a member of all these different adventuring groups but I really felt like I couldn't compete with these people that you see like these weekend warriors who are doing the grass grind all the time which is this really arduous hike that people do on the west coast or who are doing like massive backpacking trips and I thought I want to learn more about my home province because I'd been living in Toronto for about nine years. And like a lot of folks who grew up in the Lower Mainland of BC, like I grew up in Surrey, I hadn't really been outside of the Lower Mainland. Like I'd been to Victoria and I'd been to um, Hope and Princeton, but those were kind of the furthermost points, which is nowhere near covering the province, which is a huge province. So I wanted this project to really acquaint me with all the different terrain in BC. Um, and I hoped that it would turn me into this adventurous version of myself, uh, that I like. I wanted to be one of those weekend warriors and really 
as I say in the book, like earn my fleece jacket and earn my gaiters and kind of live up to the equipment that we all seem to have on the coast. <laughs> and, and then like what ended up happening was I, I did turn into a version of myself, but it was like the truest version of myself where I was having these cool adventures and misadventures, but I was really just learning more about who I really am, which is an artist and a writer and an editor in the woods. Yeah. I think it's so cool too, the way that you kind of came to it. Like you, you talk about it and how, you know, you had been doing this, this work of editing and it's fast paced and deadlines and a lot of time indoors, right? You're a lot of time looking at screens and, uh, this is kind of like the the antidote or the antithesis of that life that you were you were leading and, and on the on the back um, cover which is very succinctly and beautifully written <laughs> it says Amanda Lewis is a burned out book editor and a novice hiker looking for a challenge when she sets out to visit the biggest trees in British Columbia and like what was it like you had this friend adventure Kate and you know this desire to get out into nature and connect but what was it specifically about finding these champion trees that you're like mm, this is the thing that I'm going to do. Not like visit the provincial parks or, you know, <laughs> every weekend I'm going to do a different hike in Vancouver, which is something that's successful. What was it? Was it like a, an element of kind of adventure and challenge and something that's completely different and new? Or like what pulled you into it? It's kind of a, a bit of all of those things that you mentioned. And when I started the project, I definitely had this completionist tendency, which a lot of us have, you know, like, when I was a kid, I tried to collect all the pogs and, uh, you know, maybe people had like beanie babies or whatever, kind of royal spoons or something. And I felt like I want a project that will give me some framing for my life. Like if I just decided to do a hike a weekend, I felt that I would really lose interest in that. And, but that's how the project kind of started is that I was doing more of these hikes so to back up a bit, when I moved back to the West Coast in Toronto, I was really, really burned out because I'd just been striving in my career for years and was yeah, just staring at screens and like running P&Ls and editing books. It was constantly immersed in words and I wanted to feel more in my body. And so when I moved back to the coast, I went through this burnout period of, you know, moving across the country is exhausting, but like leaving a job is exhausting. Um, leaving friends and trying to settle in is exhausting. So I felt like I wasn't really, I didn't really know myself anymore. So in addition to trying to know the province, I was trying to know myself. And so I, the way I got to know myself was through these day hikes. And I said to Kate, like, I want to do a blog to capture these hikes. And she was just like, it's like a little boring. It's not really a good idea. But I, you know, why not see all these champion trees? So she put me onto this idea and it seemed to match that level of ambition that I'd had for myself, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I couldn't learn how to be a big tree tracker. It can't be that hard. Like, trees are all around us. BC is full of them. There are so many big trees, like, near my home in Vancouver. I will just learn how to do it. And editors are great at finding frames and frameworks. And so the trees became my framework. Um, but she might have suggested, like, why don't you go see the McDonald's of the lower mainland? And I'm like, great idea. I will go do that. It's just that she happened to light on to this idea of the BC big tree registry. But once I decided on the trees, I of course started thinking of them as like, wow, like these trees are so big and beautiful and they're going to be like a portal to my life. Like I'm going to 
have them solve all my questions and like get me through this burnout and figure out my next step. There's going to be like transcendental. And that's a lot of pressure to put on a tree. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, you, you, you write, uh, there's a good line in there. And, and perhaps perhaps we can touch on, I know this is maybe jumping ahead a bit, but you say, when it came down to it, I was just a girl standing in front of a tree asking it to change my life, <laughs> right? And it's yeah. like, at one hand, it's kind of silly and flippant. Um, but on the other hand, I'm sure that if I asked you, so how did the trees change your life? You probably have a pretty good answer. Well, it, it did. They did change my life over the long run because I've been doing this project now for about five years and excuse me, I have learned how to be more of an adventurer and really know these trees. And I know a lot more about trees, but they, they didn't change my life in the, in the short term because they're just trees, right? Like they don't ask you to come and visit them. They're only declared champions because we say like, you're the biggest by some definition that we've made up and it's all quantitative. And so usually when I found a champion in those early days, I was like, are you sure you're the champion? Like, you don't seem very impressive. <laughs> a lot of the champions are not, as we would think of, like, huge trees. They're the biggest of their species. So it might be a tree that's, like, three meters tall. Or it might be a Douglas fir that's 66 meters tall or taller. And But this idea of, of seeking out something that we think is going to change our life is something that we all do, right? We're like, I'm going to get that job and then things are going to be different. Or like, I'm going to get the car, I'm going to get the girl. Like, whatever it is, or I'm going to get jacked. Like, we have these goals that we think will just change everything and generally they don't. We're mm-hmm. still just ourselves. So kind of digging into that a little bit, um, can you kind of share your expectations at the start of the book versus what you experienced along the way? I know... <clears throat> You know, you might have pictured one thing, but the the process is often different than the expectations. So can you kind of share a little bit of, of the journey and what you experienced along the way versus what you might have expected before day one? Totally. Um, so what I had hoped for and what I'd expected is that I would find 43 champion trees and I would do it in 52 weeks because I would find a tree a week, with, you know, reasonable, like I'm working a day job, I'll find them on the weekends. And a lot of them grew around or grow around Vancouver. So I thought maybe I could like knock off a couple in a weekend and then I'll do a road trip and that will take care of the rest. (laughs) And I'll take a few weeks off for holidays. Like I can't go out every weekend. So that was my expectation going into it. And I like the spoiler alert is I didn't come anywhere near that. And a lot of factors influence your success in finding trees it's like, it's hard to find trees. This is one of the truisms of the book is you would think it would be easy. Like I'm staring out at trees right now in my front yard. Like they're easy to find, right? Mm. But when you're trying to find the biggest tree, you have to have skills in assessing what is bigness. Like what is the biggest? How do you measure a tree? Big trees tend to grow together in really good grow sites. So you might like tromp through the forest all day and find a bunch of big trees And then you're left scratching your head because you're like, these are all big, like superlative examples, but what is the biggest? Oh, I can't, I don't know how to measure. And so that was one of the things that really held me back. And I didn't know how to identify trees. Like, how do you identify trees in the winter if they're deciduous and they've lost their leaves? How do you tell apart different types of hemlocks? Like very distinct differences if you know to look for them. But I was a book editor, not an arborist. 
So the book, the book and the project really, really morphed. And it was, it was so depressing because I thought I'm not going to achieve this project. And I, I want to achieve, like I'm very goal oriented. And I thought I would just fail at this whole project. And I had to really, really rescale the size of the project. And at first it looked like extending the timeline to from a year to 18 months. Gradually I extended the whole time frame to a lifetime because I thought this whole approach of looking for single trees really misses the point is that we are supposed to be living in interconnected lives. The forest really models that interconnection. And just by looking for trees that are indicated on a spreadsheet that I'm checking off, it, like, I don't want to live that kind of life. So that's how it changed for me. And editors are really great at managing authors' expectations. And so that's something that we do a lot of when people are like, I want to write a book. We number one New York Times bestseller. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But like, chances are that won't happen. So let's figure out what success will look like for you. Like maybe it's holding the book, maybe it's finishing the book, something else. And once I realized that the project was not meant to turn me into more adventurous version of myself, but more of myself, which is a creative person, and I could recast it as a creative project, then I was like, oh, I'm like going about this the wrong way. I should be thinking about it as an editor instead of a writer. So writers often become really attached to the ending. Like, this is how the book's going to go. I know exactly how it's going to end. And editors are like, ah, like, let's, let's see how you do. Like, this is interesting. This isn't. You're finding success here. You're not. Your deadline's coming up. <laughs> You're not going to be able to finish. And so then I could just treat it more like a creative project where you get excited about something, rush headlong into it, then you realize it's harder than it looks. You don't have the resources. You don't have the time. So you recast it into something that's possible. Mm. I love that. Um, it made me think, I've mentioned this scene before. It's one of my favorite movie scenes. Um, made me think of in Darjeeling Limited, one of Wes Anderson's movie, Darjeeling Limited, when they're on the train and they they take a break from the train and they're in the middle of the desert and they light some incense and they're waiting for a spiritual experience because they're in India and they have incense and they're like, are you feeling it? Are you feeling it? Do you, do you feel spiritual? <laughs> And, you know, it's just such a, a funny scene of yeah. of us thinking when we arrive at the destination, we're going to have this profound awakening when, as you experience through the book, you know, you, you tune into this interconnectedness of nature and how that can frame, you know, be beautify things in our way of being. Um, and that interconnectedness is, is more value than finding the destination. Mm. Um I just always find that curious when we're when we're looking for something, we kind of miss all of the in between, and the in between is is where everything kind of happens. Um, yeah. did, did you find that in your process too? Like it became, you know, you were seeking for all these champions, all these giants, but um, that interconnectedness that you looked for, that you kind of found in the end, was in between these spaces. Totally, yeah. Because in rushing headlong to see these big trees, like. Generally, when you're a big tree tracker, you, you know, you're scanning all the time for the biggest, right? The tree that's jutting above the canopy or the big trunk that you can see through the forest, and you make a beeline for it. And I realized that in doing that, I was rushing past all these other beautiful things like 
smaller trees that are no less interesting or evergreen huckleberries or blueberries or like little critters like a little squirrel on a log like really like cute things and also interesting things and ways of seeing the forest as something that's actually sustaining these big trees mm. so a big tree that grows alone is impressive but it's really lacking a lot of that interconnection that keep it alive and i'm thinking about more clear cuts versus say like an oak growing in a meadow right that has its own ecosystem um and what came down for me is that when i set out to find these 43 trees in 52 weeks i was like i'm going to do it by myself i'm going to get all the guidebooks i'm going to learn how to do it i'm not going to ask for i'm not going to ask questions i'm not going to ask people how to be an adventurer because bc is a pretty gnarly province like you have to have some level of skill when you're going into the forest or down logging roads and i was just like i can do it like and i I still have that tendency like i started running this year and i immediately signed up for like an 11k a 10k and a 28k (laughs) i'm like yeah i'll just figure i'll just do it and then you then you learn the skills to get there um but from starting alone, I realized that I was having very little success and really like I wasn't having much fun. So I tentatively started inviting friends to come with me. And that actually made it more fun because even when we wouldn't find the tree, we would just have a good time. And the interconnection in my life came through really becoming friends with a lot of the BC Big Tree Registry committee members who work in the woods all the time and have been tracking trees for years and are super generous and kind and lots of fun. And so now I don't have a list of trees anymore. I just go out with my friends. And that's a really big shift for me because I'm not like a solo person. And now I'm like relying on people and having fun with people. And I think that's a better way to live. It's interconnected and it's happy. And it's also very anti-capitalist because mm. we're doing things just for the hell of it, not to be productive. And we're not doing all this individual striving. Yeah. Yeah. As you're, as you're talking, and I know you mentioned it in the book as well, but it made me think of uh, the big lonely Doug and how (laughs) it's so stark, like that image. uh, It's, it's, I don't know if it's a champion, but it's an enormous tree and it sits kind of in this like valley that's been relatively like clear cut and it stands out so much because of all of the little little trees or you know what we might see is like insignificant trees they aren't there and it's that whole ecosystem that makes the forest and it's that whole ecosystem that makes you know finding that tree amongst all of the others like that much more beautiful and profound and when you strip everything away and you know in some ways it's kind of this like beautiful but also tragic story of the of the person who who tried to save this tree because recognizing you know it was probably over a thousand years old and it's so big and we have to save it but in doing so it paints this picture of like the tree on its own is more vulnerable than when it's together because of winds and all of these certain things it's more exposed it's not playing its role in the ecosystem and i feel like in some ways like that picture i mean people can can google it like the the lonely dug or the big dug or whatever um that picture is in some ways like that understanding of you, you set out to find the tree and then Mm -hmm. realizing it's kind of bleak when you look for just the one thing, it's far more beautiful and all encompassing to see it in like how it should be in the midst of all of the ecosystem and the life that it supports and sustains and is supported by. 
Yeah. Have you ever been to that site or what are your thoughts on, on that? I have. Yeah. So Big Lonely Dog, um, for listeners who don't know, is a it's a coastal Douglas fur and it's actually the second biggest. It's not the champion, Oof, right. even though it is such a beautiful, perfect tree. It's like the platonic ideal of a Douglas fir. It's straight and it has this beautiful crown of like dark green boughs and it's 66 meters tall and I think over two meters in diameter. And it's just, it's huge, right? And it was recently dated as 932 years old. Okay. So it's this like beautiful tree and it's growing in a clear cut near Port Renfrew in southern Vancouver Island. The reason it's growing there is the story is that Dennis Cronin, who was the timber cruiser, who was, uh, timber cruisers go into an area that's going to be logged before the loggers and they identify trees that should be cut and shouldn't be cut. And they are, are skilled. They're, they're trained to assess the, the forest in terms of danger and, um, value of the timber. So a big tree is worth a lot of money, right? For all like the jobs and all the lumber that's in that tree. And the story goes that he found this tree. And just thought it was so beautiful that he decided to keep it. And he put a ribbon around the tree that says leave tree. And the, the reasons for leaving a tree are not just because he liked it. It's also that trees are left as seed trees so they can then repopulate the cut block. So they're like very good trees. They're like, this is like a really strong, healthy tree. We would love to have its seeds help to regenerate this cut block. So it's, it's left for a reason. But this, the difference between that tree and the canoe cut was really stark. So when TJ Watt, who works with the Ancient Forest Alliance, stumbled upon this tree in this cut block, he was like, wow, like this, he's a photographer, a very, very great photographer. And he's like, this is like an amazing image for the environmental movement. And he took a photo of this tree and it went viral. There's a great book called Big Lonely Doug by Harley Rustad, which is the book that my friend Kate had actually read to learn about the BC Big Tree Registry. And Big Lonely Doug is now really, it's visited a lot. And it's like the, the jury's out about whether or not it's healthier or not because it doesn't have the forest growing around it. Um, the science is still developing on that note about the mycorrhizal networks. It's just like hard to say. But the, the big thing is that we can all really relate to it and anthropomorphize this tree because we know what it's like to grow alone and to be alone. And I think that's why it has such a big connection for people. Um, the beauty of a tree growing to such a big size is that it's growing just for itself and like not by any standards or it's not like I'm going to be the biggest Doug first so I can be worth $60,000 to the timber industry. Like it's just growing because that's what it's doing mm -hmm. and it's achieving its potential. But what's interesting about a lot of these trees is that I didn't see them in like natural forest settings. Um, so the one that comes to mind is the champion bitter cherry, which was growing in North Vancouver by the bus loop. And it's like, a very busy transit hub right and i went looking for this bitter cherry which is a big bitter cherry but is not like in any way a tree that you would stop to look at the proof is that people just walk past it you know, twice a day and these champions aren't marked with a plaque or anything because it's it's like an invisible label that we pass around between trees um, unlike say a heritage tree, it was like on this day in you know 1808, this tree was involved in this thing. Um, so this bitter cherry was growing right on the curb 
And I had to walk past a few times and then I saw it really ringed in garbage and covered in vines and it had lost, it gained some growth over the 18 years since the photo that I was looking at um, and it lost a branch. But, you know, I was pretty sure that this was the tree, but I was like, well, you're not really that impressive, right? Like you look kind of like a weed tree because you're growing in this overgrown <laughs> residential lot and the the tree has since been cut down as best we can tell because that area was then slated for development so i went back last summer and i couldn't find it and a friend also went and we're pretty sure it's cut down um another place that big trees or trees can become big is in arboretum arboretums or arboreta so these big botanical gardens and there's a few around vancouver they're super great most cities have one uh, at least and it could be private or public and an arboretum is like, an, imagine a park, but then there's special trees planted in it. And they might be exotic trees, trees that have been brought here, or they might be native trees. The thing about growing a tree in a park is it doesn't have it much competition, so it can get really big. So if you go to Van Dusen Botanical Gardens in Vancouver, there are these huge sequoias. And sequoias get big, but these are only like 40 years old. And the reason for that is sequoias grow fast, but it's like perfect tree for our climate and it has no competition. It just has like perfect sunlight. So that's not a natural setting for a tree, but it's still big. Hmm. That's funny. I was going to ask you about Van Dusen. I feel like, um, you know, I like taking my kids there because it represents like what a nature, it is nature. It is a nature experience, mm-hmm. but it represents what a a natural forest experience can be like in all of these regions of the world. But it is it is funny in that sense. I've always thought that like these trees seem unnaturally large for, for the setting. Like I, f- I feel like they're like taking performance enhancing <laughs> fertilizers or something <laughs> like that compared to They kind of are because there's gardeners taking care of them and probably giving them extra water when it's dry out and fertilizers and but they're such a great place for you and your kids to learn about trees because they are labeled. Yeah, you'd be like, ah, this is a sequoia. I can tell because it's labeled. And here's a Norway spruce. Yes, mm. I'm always good at sounding really smart when I take my kids there. Like, oh, observe this such and such tree, or this this bush bush from like Western Japan or whatever. Yeah, you're like, like, ooh, wow. behold the rhododendron versus the azalea. It's yeah. so obvious to see the difference. And they're like, wow, you're amazing, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> a little for for those parents listening there's a little cheat sheet for you if you're if your yeah. kids are not yet literate you can sound really smart <laughs> that's right at yeah. Van Dusen Gardens. um all joking aside van Dusen is one of my favorite spots in lower mainland and it's actually like the membership is such a good deal mm-hmm. for what you get i was an annual member when i lived there and you just get like it's great it's one of the best deals in uh, vancouver which is saying something <laughs> It's true. I do love Van Dusen. Yeah. Um, you shared that great story about the the cherry tree. Um, we love kind of campfire storytelling sessions. You know, like we kind of often imagine that, uh, you know, we're just old friends getting together after backpacking around the world and just sitting around with wonder for the adventures that we've seen. And you have, you know, so many great various adventures in this book of all these champions that you visited. Um, but I thought for the sake of the listener, maybe um, we can kind of recreate that, that campfire setting and you could tell uh, the story of, you know, one or two of your, your favorite adventures for some of the champions that you found. 
For sure. Yeah. So one of the things about big tree tracking is that it would be so great for the campfire tale if it was like I set out and then at the end of the day, like I found the tree. Yes. But like one of the truths is that you usually make a lot of trips to see the tree, or at least I do. Like my friends who are big tree trackers kind of get it in one, but I'm just like still kind of flailing in the forest. Um, so one of the trees that comes to mind is the Chilliwack giant, which is this huge grand fir. Um, growing out in Chilliwack, so out in the valley um, east of Vancouver. And it was found in, I think, the 90s by this fellow named Randy Stoltman. And he was a you know, bona fide adventurer who lived in West Van and traveled all around the lower mainland and Vancouver Island looking for big trees. And his records actually started the BC Big Tree Registry um, way back in the 90s. Uh, tragically, he was killed in a mountaineering accident in his early 30s. Um, but his legacy really lives on. And one of the ways is through this book called Hiking Guide to Southwestern British, to the biggest trees of Southwestern British Columbia, something like that. And this was my Bible in those early months of learning how to be a big tree tracker. And that map has, sorry, that book has what a lot of the data lacks, which is a map. And I had a map to go see this big grand fur out in Chilliwack. And I thought, oh, it's going to be easy, you know, just gonna follow the map and like be home by dinner which is always my you know benchmark I'm like be home by dinner <laughs> and uh, so my friend Kate and I we went out to Chilliwack and like blasting Beastie Boys along the way and we get to the trailhead and it's just coated in ice and I'm like oh my god how are we gonna get down this road so we can then start hiking in to see this tree like it's it's almost like two o'clock now, like how are we going to do this? And Kate lives in Northern BC. And it's, I should say this is like January, February. I hadn't expected ice out in Chilliwack because in the lower mainland, we don't think about that. And it was like a thick, thick coat of ice. And she said, just put your chains on, like put your chains on your little Toyota Yaris. And I was like, what chains? Like, I don't carry chains. Like, who carries chains in the lower mainland? <laughs> so we had to just turn around and then I went back in the summer and I thought I'm going to bring some reinforcements. I'm going to bring someone who really knows the area. And I went with this local vet named Dick and he really knows this forest that we we're going into, which is the Chilliwack Ecological Reserve. He's gone in there a lot. We had the map, we had the coordinates set out and we look and we look and we find like big cedars and big Douglas firs and big grand firs, but not this tree. And one of the reasons is that the tree, that sorry, the map and the coordinates and the directions were saying like, find this sandbar and it'll point you to the location of this tree. But as we know, rivers change, sandbars move. So that was no longer a wayfinder. And we used the coordinates because um, we had them in the GPS, but we still couldn't find this tree. So we're like, this is a real mystery. So we went back in November and we brought Dick's son who's a renowned conservationist in the area, knows the area really well, um, and our friend Andre, and looked and looked and walked along these logs and like looked high and low, combed all over, split up, got back together, um, found cool stuff, found like salmon in the woods and found bear poo and found eagle poo and found a silver mine, like cool stuff, couldn't find this tree. So I thought, you know, I think it's, I think it's probably gone. Like grand firs, they're, they get really big, but they only live a couple hundred years. So I thought maybe it just, maybe it just fell down. And I was content to leave it at that. 
because big tree trackers, when they're trying to find the champions, if they can't find the champion, there's always a runner-up. It's like an heir and a spare system. So like when, when the king dies, the prince is ready to move in, right? <laughs> um, so I was like, yeah, I'll just find the next biggest one. But this guy named Sean O'Rourke, who's an archaeologist out in Hope in the valley, was like, oh, I've got to find this tree. Like, he's like, I'm a professional finder. I'm putting words in his mouth, of course, but like, <laughs> I'm a professional finder. I'm really good at it. And he is. Uh, like, I've got to put this mystery to bed. So he went out like every week to try to find this tree. <laughs> and he looked and he combed and he looked at the forest and transects and like how an archaeologist would look for something. And he just couldn't, couldn't find it. Um, and eventually he found this stump and what had happened was the tree, it had toppled over because the ground floor gets so big and tall that it just then would one big windstorm would gradually knock it over. So he found the stump and that was the end of the, the Chilliwack ground floor. So it's, it's one of my favorite tree stories, even though I never saw the tree, <laughs> I didn't even see the stump, but so much of it is just looking and then having a good time in the woods with your friends. Mm. Uh, that's, so that's one of my favorites. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and it's maybe a perfect story to share because it does go like hand in glove with what you've been talking about in that whole journey of setting out to find the tree and then realizing, you know what, maybe it's not, maybe it's not about that and realizing, yeah. you know, like you, like you just shared, it's, it's bigger than that. Um, as you were sharing a, a question, kind of a curiosity popped into my mind, like amongst people who would you know, maybe call themselves to various degrees of, you know, uh, adequacy, like big tree finders. Is there like some friendly competition? Is it pretty supportive? Is it like, okay, uh, you know, at some point, so-and-so's look, they're both looking for this specific, you know, like the grand firm where like, I want to find it first. Is there a little bit of like notoriety that goes along with having, you know, getting to report to the BC tree registry? Like I found it. There, there is and there isn't. So there's this common thing. So I should say be, like, big tree registries, they're not unique to BC. There's one in, I think, every state in in, uh, the, in the United States. And then the US has its own like kind of massive registry. And then there's a couple across Canada. And then there's some elsewhere. Oh, here's my cat. Um, there's some elsewhere in the world. And... Um, there was this friendly rivalry, I don't know if it still is, between U.S. and Canadian big tree trackers, which basically amounts to, like, mine is bigger than yours. <laughs> and most, also, I should say, most tree trackers are men. Um, and so it's all kind of ridiculous. But I, I find that there's a lot of camaraderie um, in the tree tracking community. And when I started, the people who've been doing it for years really encouraged me, like, get out there, like, go down this road, find some big trees. Like, I know you can do it. Like, you can find a bigger ponderosa pine. Um, but there are some people who really just love getting out there and, and finding it and kind of guarding that knowledge. So there was a big tree tracker who uh, went to his death with the knowledge. This is mythical, but like of the biggest cedar in the province. And people have been trying to find this cedar ever since then. And I mean, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. Um, the thing about looking for trees that's kind of silly is that First Nations who've lived here since time immemorial, they might already know the location of the big tree, like they probably would because they've been wandering it for generations and it might have story attached to it or have another value attached to it. 
And so this idea of like finding and discovering trees is kind of problematic. Mm. Um, but mostly I find that people are willing to share their knowledge. And what was really frustrating for me um, in the beginning is that I was looking at records from say the nineties and, or the early two thousands. And there just wasn't a lot of information and it's not necessarily like it was a hoarding of information. It might've just not been entered because someone thought, Oh, I'll just remember and I'll tell them like where it is. Um, but when you're looking at directions to the biggest vine maple in the province, it's in Burnaby central park, which is a huge park. And it's the directions are behind the tennis courts, <laughs> which back onto the park and there's like 12 tennis courts or something, then it's really hard to find, find the tree. Um, so in that way, it doesn't make it very user-friendly or accessible. But I have to give full credit to the BC Big Tree Registry because they've been making the records way more accessible, making it way easier for people like me who don't have these skills um, to get out and actually find these trees. Hey friends, just interrupting the episode to share about our latest and greatest skincare routine that we're on this summer with Caldera Lab. It's amazing. We're on the regimen. We know that uh, skincare matters. It's 2023. We got to be looking after ourselves. And Caldera Lab makes it easy to look after your skin. I know sometimes it can be overwhelming with all oh, moisturizers and all of these things, but let's break it down. The regimen includes three products, the Clean Slate, the base layer, and the good. Clean Slate starts and ends your day. It's a face wash that leaves all skin types feeling refreshed. The base layer is your daily moisturizer to hydrate your skin and jumpstart your day full of confidence. And honestly, I love the base layer. It feels so good when I put it on. It absorbs right in. It's honestly the best. And the good is your go-to multifunctional serum. At first, I was like, I don't know if I need a serum. But then you put it on, and literally within minutes, you're like, my face looks so much better. It gives you a tighter and smoother look, is reducing the visibility of wrinkles and fine lines. And what's crazy is that every drop of the serum is packed with 3.4 million antioxidant units protecting your skin. So you got to get on it. The regimen, it's so easy. It's like a minute, two minutes of your life in the morning in the evening and it just works well it makes you feel good caldera lab is the leader in men's skin care made with only top tier ingredients and clinical trials have found that 94 percent of men's skin showed an overall younger looking appearance after using it for just a few weeks all right so you're going to want to get on it and we have an exclusive offer which is honestly their best offer available anywhere Go to their website, calderalab.com, and use our code MOREGOOD for 20% off right now. That's right, 20% off with code MOREGOOD at calderalab.com and make unforgettable first impressions that lead to people saying, man, you look good. You know you want that. 20% off at calderalab.com with our code MOREGOOD. Check it out, friends. Today's episode is brought to you by AG1. We love AG1 because when we drink it, we know it is our foundational nutritional supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients for the whole body health. AG1 really replaces all of your multivitamins, probiotics, and more in one simple and delicious drinkable habit. It's science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients is going to support your health. We love it. We drink it every day. It's part of our morning ritual. We know that when we drink it, we've got our daily 
nutritional needs met. It has 75 high quality vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients. Honestly, I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I trust this product so much and literally use it every day. We love AG1. If you are looking for a simpler, effective investment in your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. All you got to do is go to drinkag1.com slash more good. That's drinkag1.com slash more good. Check it out, friends. I love that. Um, in, in reading your book, like I have to say, it's one of my my favorite West Coast books now. And, and um, one of my other ones, uh, The Golden Spruce, um, I feel like this is almost like the the anti-Golden Spruce in some ways because you have this mythical character, Grant Hadwin and, and The Golden Spruce, who like was basically born and raised by the trees and yeah. is like kind of like one of them in many ways. Um, and then, you know, approaching it, in your way, not not growing up with the same kind of uh, relationship or comfort in the forest that a Grant Hadwin had, but and and no less is your story any less heroic. You know, I think uh, it's it, to read those two is to see two different perspectives of trees in BC and how they can be celebrated um, and the stories behind them. Um, one thing I'm curious about, like a lot has happened in the last, you know, couple of years, but I guess more so since colonization started in BC, there's been a lot of stories and protests um, behind the deforestation of our of our old growth here in, in British Columbia. Um, how has, has your connection with trees kind of changed your activism in kind of advocating and protecting them? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's also a little difficult for me to answer. So I'll take a long, convoluted way. Yeah, of <laughs> so, um, so I grew up um, in BC, and there was a series of protests in the '90s at Clackwatt Sound on Vancouver Island in '93, and and there on, and leading up to it, leading up to 1993, and they were um, these pivotal protests to save old growth on Vancouver Island and they were really memorable and um, what's the word I'm looking for they're really significant because they brought together a wide swath of the population so First Nations and families kids elders everyone coming together to protect these trees and I grew up seeing the reports of this this protest on the news and I was about 10 and my family, you know, we didn't go over to Vancouver Island because that, that was like a world away, you know, from the lower mainland at that time. And, but like a lot of people who grew up in that time, we just assumed that that was fixed, right? That we didn't cut down old growth anymore. And that's not the case in BC. So we have been clearing the last of our old growth for decades um, if you want to know more about the the numbers behind it, there's a reporter who works for the Taiyi, which is a great local publication, and I'm blanking on his name right now, but he does wonderful work in this area, and he's said that we've cut down the last of our green gold, um, is that we've thought about our trees as a renewable resource, but the fact of the matter is the old growth trees, which are the most valuable to the timber industry, for good reason, they're like exceptional lumber, um, they are just really 
they take a long time to grow and we don't think about our forestation or for our forestry and, and reforesting um, in terms of centuries. We think in terms of decades. So we can never achieve that old growth. So that brings us to today and to Ferry Creek. Ferry Creek was this protest that happened a couple of years ago and has since mostly disbanded. And it was set up to preserve a section of old growth on Vancouver Island, um, again, near Port Renfrew, near, the, near Big Lonely Doug. And I won't go into the ins and outs of the protest because there's a lot of disagreement about it. Um, but I, what is significant about Ferry Creek is that it surprised a lot of people because we felt like ha the majority of people felt that we had solved those problems back in the 90s with Clackwatt, like kind of hadn't we learned our lesson. And the fact is that we have less than 2% of old growth, like viable, productive old growth left in the province. Um, a lot of the old growth that's left is pretty hard to reach. It's like growing up on mountains or in steep terrain. It's not really um, logged, but all the valley bottoms have been basically logged right out um, or are close to being logged out. Uh, a couple of years ago, TJ Watt, who found Big Lonely Doug growing in that clear cut, he went back to uh, see some big trees that he'd, that he'd documented, he'd photographed in the Kekus Valley near Lake Couch and in southern Vancouver Island. And he just was like, oh, I'm going to go see those trees that were so beautiful. And they had been cut. And he did these before and after photos of these trees. And they went viral and the Guardian picked them up and everyone was like outraged about these trees. But the trees have been cut within limits. Like the government had given the timber company a license to do it. And the timber company, tech, quote unquote, didn't do anything wrong because they were allowed to be there and allowed to cut down a tree of that size. But the public, again, was outraged. Like, why are we cutting down such big trees? Now, it gets really thorny because then you think, well, who owns these trees and who owns the rights and who owns the land? And that's a topic that I... I won't get into because we'll be here forever. But it is something that I don't feel necessarily qualified to answer, and especially because the policies seem to change like monthly. And it is shifting. We are seeing a paradigm shift in BC in how we approach our forest management. Um, but in my opinion, it's not moving swiftly enough. Um, but yeah, it's hmm. a long answer to that question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting where policy versus, you know, ethics can be two different things. You know, policy can say one thing's okay, and, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's, it doesn't mean that it's okay for the longevity and, and health of that forest or, you know, for the planet Earth. Uh, but within policy, it is okay. So it, it does get so blurry and gray and confusing it, when things yeah. are illegal, but they're still not good to um, under, you know, a subjective view of what's good and what's bad. Mm. Um, so yeah. capitalism and logging would say it's okay. But then, you know, environmentalists, you know, people that are concerned about deforestation would say that it's bad. So it is it is blurry and nuanced and you know i think having conversations is always a good starting point to to be concerned or aware of kind of what's happening in our province but in the world at large definitely and the final note to that it's say it's it's also less about 
capitalism and more about these runaway markets and like how we decide to use those logs um, because there are a lot of really um, sustainably minded small mills and, and forestry operations and like when we clear those trees we're like, getting rid of jobs essentially is what we're doing and so it's not like forestry is bad at all um, it's just one way of looking at the forest that is probably outdated now um, and also for First Nations, like they, if they want to cut down a big old tree that they have been eyeing for, say, a canoe where they want it for ceremonial purposes, like should they be allowed to cut that down? Like who gets to say what they can do with their trees on their land? So it becomes really thorny. And the way I look at it is it is subjective because it's all about how you look at a tree, right? It all comes down to perspective. So I look at a tree and I think that's a pretty big tree. It's this type of tree. It's a beautiful tree. It's missing this limb or it has an extra limb or whatever way of looking at it. Um, my friend Colin will look at the tree and think, I'd love to draw that cedar. Um, someone who's a carver might look at the tree and be like, that'd be a great pole. And someone who runs a small mill will be like, that is like so many cedar shingles, you know, like that, that's worth that much in board feet. Um, so it's just the way we look at anything. Hmm. Yeah. I, I like how even in, in your book, you, you kind of tackle some of that, that subtlety and nuance. And I think it's worthy of like kind of bringing it into the conversation here too is, you know, some of my own experiences like uh, just north of Whistler, there's a trail that you can go up on Cougar Mountain and it's called Ancient Cedars Loop. And it's not the hardest hike, but it's it's a bit of a hike. And you get up there and eventually you get up to this area where there are these beautiful ancient cedars and they're enormous. And there's something about walking through a beautiful forest and, you know, admiring all of this forest as you, as you go along and there's little waterfalls and stuff. And then you come up to this place where the trees are just enormous. And having an experience like that is truly like eye-opening and humbling. And it, for me, it like sparks that, that converse, conversation, conservationalist and protectionist in me where I'm like, man, we need to keep this. And like, I want my kids to see this and how important is this as part of the ecosystem, you know, and, and we're in the age of social media where we take a picture of, you know, of trying to wrap four friends around the trunk of a tree and post it on social media and tag it as Ancient Cedars Loop. And that's great on one hand, because more and more people are like, damn, that's so cool. I want to go see that. And they have that experience of participating in tree, like in the forest and experiencing, you know, all that it has to offer. But then the other side is, and this is what you write in your book, and I thought it was really, really good and, and worth highlighting, is like trees are living things, unlike a swimming hole or scenic canyon. Um, and it's worth wondering whether some of these one-of-a-kind one of trees should just be left alone. Um, and, and I love that idea. And also like publicizing the name of champion trees, which is maybe why there's some mystery and vagueness about exactly where to find these trees. Uh isn't necessarily the best idea, but it's not the issue itself. It's more about the idea that we can, once you name something as the tallest, it becomes kind of like this idea of a, a commodity, something that can be owned and named and classified as the tallest and therefore maybe sought after. And I wonder how do you navigate or how would you invite people to consider navigating the nuance between going out on the hike taking the picture, tagging it, encouraging people to go see it versus like just respecting it and leaving it alone? Like, is there a best practice? Like what, what would you invite people to consider? 
Oh, totally. And like going on that hike that you described, which sounds beautiful, like there you're really appreciating the forest as a whole. And mm. that's what I think is really key to the, when you say like, we've got to save this forest. Like it's about whole ecosystem conservation and not just singling out trees and saving them or not cutting them based on their size. Because if you save like one big tree and cut down all its friends, like that really misses the point. And a practice that big tree trackers have, which you alluded to, is naming the trees that they find, which is like, it, it's, it becomes really like hunting. There's a lot of tracking trees that comes from, I, I've just learned in the last few months, it's very similar to hunting game, which I don't know much about, but like you're measuring and you're tracking and you're naming. Um, so big tree trackers will name a big tree that they find like Hyperion. Is that like a huge tree or big lonely duck? And it's it's kind of a fun practice. Like I I named a big Pacific U on Vancouver Island made you look because I can't resist a pun. And I was like, this is kind of fun to name something. Like I name most things in my life. Like my car is nicknamed Trouble. I name my house. Like you know, we all have nicknames for things. Um, so it's a it's a really common practice of big tree tracking. But a lot of the up and coming, like younger big tree trackers aren't doing it because it does commodify the tree and it suggests like I own this tree. And it also suggests that this tree doesn't already have a name. Mm. And as you mentioned, the golden spruce. So the golden spruce is this spruce tree that was golden because of mutation in its, in its needles that made it just glow golden instead of green. And the Haida, it grew on Haida Gwaii. The Haida, of course, knew about this tree, and it was part of their mythology, and it had a name, and it had a whole origin story. And so if I went and found a big cedar and named it, like, Steve the Cedar, mm-hmm. like, it might have already had, it might already have a name, and that should be its name, you know. Again, trees don't ask for these names, we just appoint them. Um, so it's it's sort of a weird way of looking at the woods, Um we do single out these trees and connect to them because of the name. So, um, so big lonely Doug, like how can you not connect with a tree that is lonely? And we then all treat it as something to like geocache and tag and find and like, Oh yeah. Like I went to this place on my holiday. Like, isn't it cool? There's been wedding proposals at the foot of big lonely Doug, which seems to me like kind of horrific, like kind of tragic, but, but people are into it. Um, so, but the risk of just going and finding these big trees, um, and the reason that a lot of people hid that knowledge for years is that too many people visiting a tree can really love it to death, to quote my friend Greg, who works in the industry, um, is that we start to trample the roots and we might like hack off pieces of the tree, um, because we want a souvenir and timber poaching, which is a, a bit different from souvenir taking is another big risk to these trees. Um, Hyperion, it's a, those are reasons that we would want to limit, um, exposure to the tree, but Hyperion, which is one of the biggest trees in California and in the world, um, it's now illegal to visit this tree because people were like doing all those things to it, trampling the roots, hacking off pieces of it. Um, leaving human excrement around the tree, leaving garbage. And finally the park, like national park service just said like, no, like you just can't come and you will face jail time and a fine if you come to this tree. Um, so if we reduce the trees from living beings to just like a social media get, I think that really misses the point. Mm, yeah. 
Um, I think in that same section of the book, you kind of mentioned, Dean, you might be able to phrase it, like kind of celebrating the indiv- individual tree versus the forest and the the province and, and some private companies do a really good job um, here and, and elsewhere kind of creating these museum-like experiences. You know, I think you mentioned Cathedral Grove in the book. Uh, when we're driving to Tofino, we always stop at Cathedral Grove and it's this amazing idea and experience of what the forest used to be. Uh, but it's just a little puzzle piece of what's left when kind of all of its surrounding puzzle pieces have been cut down and they've left this kind of perimeter as you as the tourists drive to Tofino to see these great kind of kings and queens of trees that stand tall and, and kind of, you know, give you this visual of what the world used to be. Um, can can you, I mean, it's a bit of a sad notion, but can you kind of talk on how how companies in the province can create these ideas of what the forest is while kind of sheltering us from the reality of what is happening beyond those those borders? Yeah, it's it's not a topic that I feel totally qualified to answer because I don't work in forestry. And I have to say that a lot of forestry companies have been changing their practices and to move way to more towards more weight towards way more sustainable practices mm-hmm. um but i can talk about growing up on the coast is that a lot of the clear cuts were just hidden from us right mm-hmm. um so growing up in vancouver you don't it's not like the mountains are just bare of trees but if you go beyond the mountains there's tons of clear cuts so a lot of this stuff is happening um, without us really noticing and if we think about the trees of vancouver like there's a reason i thought oh, I could just find all these trees, like there's so many within a day's drive of of my place, Um, is because we satisfy ourselves with less, right? Like a lot of Vancouver has been cleared, but there are still lots of trees. Stanley Park, actually, um, according to my friend Colin, who runs this great walking tour called Ancient Trees of Vancouver, which like mega shout out, it's so good. Um, But he has mapped that whole park and he's found there's like 50% old growth remaining in that park. Um, but we wouldn't really think that, and we that's not really known, right? We don't think that there's all this old growth on our doorstep, but but there is. And the thing about the Cathedral Grove that's problematic, as you said, it's like this little sliver, and we really satisfy ourselves thinking like, oh, beyond that sliver, there's probably a lot of more trees just like it, but they're really held up as like this they're emblematic of the whole forest in BC and that's just not what the forest looks like. A Mm. lot of it is cut. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and there's something so interesting. I'm thinking back to experience I had too, like in, uh, I, I was at a university in Fresno, California and we took a trip to, uh, Kings Canyon national park, which is part of like the Sequoia forest or whatever. And you know, you drive all this way and, there's all of this like natural beauty all around you, but like the end point is like this kind of national park, which again is, is good. Like these trees need to be protected, but you kind of walk on, on these loops and the thing is like experience and see these massive trees. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's so necessary. It's so required, but it also felt, I remember feeling like it's, it's like somehow leaving me wanting. Cause it's like you drive in and you park and it's like, they're right there 
and it's like too easy. It's too, it's, we can take it too much for granted. And, you know, they have some good things where they, there's some of the bigger, bigger trees. Uh, what, what is the big one? The general or something it's called there. I yeah. Like general Sherman, general yeah. Sherman. Yeah. And it's like all blocked <laughs> off so you can't get too close to it. And yeah. so there's obviously important protections, but there's something that's like, it's like going to a farm and sourcing like really good food and coming home and putting on a record and opening a bottle of wine and making a meal that's like takes time and you really enjoy that meal and it's so good versus like going through the drive-thru and like no shade to King's Canyon or like Cathedral Grove but it kind of feels like going through the drive-thru like it's a little bit of like a cheap version of this true beauty but uh, there's like a tension there that I wrestle with of like we should have these things because maybe people who would never go into the forest can experience these things but at the same time experience that but also go out into just the forest and don't find the big tree you know right it's so true like we need these examples and that are accessible because again to quote my friend Greg like people people need to touch these trees so Mm. we can we can poo-poo those people who are trampling the roots at Hyperion but I can understand why they would do that because they want to get close to the tree. We want to touch it. We want to put our arms around it. We want to gaze up at it. And so we need these examples of big trees that are in accessible places. Um, I, when I first started, I was like, these trees aren't for me. Like I want to be an adventurer. I feel like I'm in a zoo. Like this is like a zoo for trees. And it was really judgmental of me. Um, but it it does feel like it feels safe. But it like it felt safe for me, but not for the person who's like come here from I don't know, I'm picking a random place like Florida. And they've come to see the beauties of BC and they drive to Tofino and they see Cathedral Grove and they're like, Wow, like that's amazing and I can touch this tree. Like, why shouldn't that be their experience? And so when I was working on the book and thinking like, is it a zoo for trees? Like, not really, because I don't think zoos should be allowed. People who are pro zoos are like, oh, it's a place for you to see elephants. And like, when are you going to get the chance? And we're not going to make that uh, argument for trees. The thing about trees, which I find both depressing and incredibly hopeful, is that if you give a tree long enough, it's going to get big. Like, if you give it the conditions for growth and allow it time, it's going to be it's going to reach its potential and get bigger this is what one of the things that the retention limits for trees kind of misses because trees sometimes grow really tall and then they get bigger then they like girth out and their diameter increases but if you have a tall skinny tree it doesn't meet the retention limit so it's not big enough and it could be cut down um or if i have like a big tree in my backyard it's my tree i can cut it down like who's going to stop me right uh, I'm not going to cut the tree down. Don't worry. <laughs> like, you know, there's there's uh, these weird ideas we have around trees. But like, the tallest tree will eventually become the biggest tree. And before we started recording, we we're talking about one of our mutual favorite books, which is the Once and Future World by James McKinnon, J.D. McKinnon. And it's an incredible book because, on the one hand, it's depressing. He talks about how we live in this 10% world, and that we've reduced our baseline. What that means is that we really satisfy ourselves with smaller and less. So he uses the example of fishing photos. You know, those like pe- photos people hold up like a big trout. They're like, look at this big tree I got, or this big trout I got. And he compared photos over the decades. And the, tree, the trout, the fish get smaller, but the smiles stay the same. And it's just that we don't have as many big fish anymore, but we're like still happy with it. We're satisfying ourselves with less. Um, but the cool thing about trees is they can grow back. 
and they're not the renewable resource that we thought but like again I'm looking out on trees right now and I have no plans to cut them and there are parks all around me and those trees won't be cut and those can all become big and if we just allow conservation to be our guiding principle um, we can achieve that once world that James writes writes about. Mm, I love that. Um, One part of his book that I I think you kind of touched on there he talked about like generational amnesia in the book as well. Like we don't know what our grandparents knew to be true and our, our children won't know what our parents knew to be true. Like, um, yeah, as, as things change and evolve, our memories from our past generations or ancestors don't live in us. So we don't know what, uh, what their truth was. We only know what ours was. And it's that 10% our baseline yeah. is 10%. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's so true. And then this idea of exponential growth, like um, I'm reading Fireweather right now, which is a book by John Valiant who wrote The Golden Spruce that we talked about before. And it, it talks about climate change and wildfire. And uh, you know, obviously climate change is worsening. Uh, wildfire is worsening. Every year is worse than the last. And it's this exponential increase. And there's a quote in there that I'm going to butcher if it's from someone else who says um, kind of the, the biggest failure of the human race is that we have a hard time imagining exponential growth. Like we can't hold it in our heads. Another way to look at it, this is another quote from the book is that um, we, the the hard part of looking at big change is that we think that all change just happened recently. We can't actually fathom it over the long run. And if we look at like a hockey stick graph of climate change, as Michael Mann and others really popularized, um, you know, decades ago now, um, then we can see that exponential growth, but we have a hard time holding it in our heads. Mm. Yeah. So many important like pieces. No, that's, I'm just, th- I'm just like in my mind thinking of that, that graph and being like, yeah, it's, it's like the simplest things, but when we live in such an immediate culture and focus on like, I want uh, I want to change this right now, right? Uh, there's a great to, to throw quotes around on that on that kind of similar vein. There's a quote that we love by Rich Roll, who says most people overestimate what they can do in a year and drastically underestimate what they can do in a decade. And it's like yeah. if you just step back, and I mean a decade is not even that long of a time, but you think about like incremental changes day over day that adds up. But over the course of a year, you might not be exactly where you want to be. And we live in the culture of instant gratification where it's like, well, yeah, climate change is a problem. Well, let's just fix it now. And it's like, well, it's no, it doesn't work that way. Like it's been happening for a number of years and we need to start figuring out how to mitigate it. And we should have been, you know, uh, in generations past more so than we yeah. have been. But, What's but there's... Sorry, go ahead. sorry go ahead. it's always but it's like always the time to start is now yes. Yes. yes that's the other truth of exponential growth is like there really is only one time to act and you just make that decision to act each day and chart out the actions and chart the results like we all do this like we do this in our daily lives anyway so it's just that we have this hard time climate change is this huge existential thing Mm -hmm. and a lot of people make the mistake of thinking it's kind of beyond them or like that group has it that scientist has figured out or that group is crazy or it's cyclical like we all just kind of pass the problem on to someone else instead of all looking at it together and being like all right you take this piece i'll take this piece and like i'll pick up the kids and like you go to work like 
you know, we all like it still needs to incorporate into our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't yeah. know why we lose the, the plot like every day. Well, I think books like yours that speak to the interconnection of things, I think that is a starting point. And I think going out, whether it's finding a champion tree or just going out into the forest and and experiencing that connection, experiencing that feeling in nature, I think it's really empowering because it can give us inspiration to take small incremental steps. Like it doesn't, you don't need to be the prime minister or the president or, or work for the city or work for a big corporation. Like we all have power within our within our daily habits that can have influence. And I think picking up books that encourage us to go outdoors and find our own champions, find our own uh, experience in nature, kind of it can for many be the first step. Like um, I think even for yourself, like how you kind of intro things that like you didn't grow up as this great backpacker or this great adventure, but you, um, you know, to bring things back to, to my kids again, like sometimes we watch Daniel Tiger and uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but Daniel Tiger always talks about like, you can be more than one thing. And I think you really embody and illustrate this so well, like you were an editor and then you became an adventure and then you became a writer and, you know, you can be all of these things at once, but you can also be more than one thing at a time. And I think we can be, um, we can all be climate activists and, and take small changes while being part of our, our daily habits if, if we can just start now, like you said. And I think once we know better, we do better. And I think reading books like yours help us know better. So... I think you're creating a domino that is sometimes impossible to see, but it will create future generations of people that are more kind to the environment Mm -hmm. and hopefully more kind to themselves in in doing so. Um, One question I have, which is actually your question. It's from, I believe, your blog. I was looking at your blog. Your website's amazing, by the way. I love how you can kind of click on a tree and it shares the stories and you've got these great you've got playlists and you've got like lists of books. I love lists, by the way. I'm like a big, like the end of year is always like my favorite time of the year because if I miss the whole year, I can just read all of the lists of like- Best books, best albums, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, if I didn't read, pay attention to anything for the year, I'm all good because- uh, January year, is always such a good month. You're like, wow, these albums are so amazing. Yeah. I mean, I missed these last year. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I think it was on your blog that I kind of highlighted this, but it says- I read, um, what does it mean to search for the biggest and best in our lives? How is big tree tracking actually an artistic process? What do we lose when we pursue bigness at the expense of small joys? I believe this is your question. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But yeah, maybe maybe, maybe you can answer your own question because I think <laughs> it kind of encapsulates what you experienced in, in creating this book. Uh, so the idea of bigness is one that, is really followed me through this book um, when and the whole project. When I was working on the draft, um, the work one of the working subtitles was a meditation on bigness, um, and I I really got stuck on this idea of like why we search for the biggest and best of something. 
Um, so like, uh, you know, this is the biggest blue whale. This is the biggest, like, or the best album, right? This is the yes. best album of 2020. Like, we're just like locked on to these lists and we like to quantify and, and, and qualify things all the time. Um, but what I found in looking for these big trees and like making a beeline for them is that I would miss all these lovely things along the way. Like the joy of giving yourself, like being kind to yourself and letting yourself sleep in. And uh, like bringing people along for the ride, even though it would expose you as a failure, you know, in public um, or blogging about the failures. Like I realize there's actually small joys in that. And if we just embrace them and be vulnerable, um, big trees, you can sub in anything in, for big trees. Like it could be like, I want to have kids. I want to find my soulmate. Um, I want to make partner. And when we go just like focus on that one big goal, we really can get, um, like put our blinders up and lose all these things. So, you know, it's like classic rom-com thing where it's like, I'm looking for Mr. Right. Oh my God, it was my best friend the whole time, right? Like he was right there. And like, that's, that's really the lesson I had to learn over and over and over. And I'm, I'm a new runner and I'm trying to like currently training for this really hard 10k which is very hilly and the old me would just like start start running and be like i'm gonna get to 10k i didn't get to 10k i suck like i can't do this i'm the worst runner ever like just throw my shoes like off a cliff right and now i'm tackling it um in a way that feels manageable and kind and fun which is like i got a great playlist and I just do four kilometers and I do this part of the route and then that part of the route. And I do it like a few times a week. And it's like learning a musical score. I realized this morning when I was out running, it's like, oh yeah, you like nail your solo and then you start knitting it together. And that's like way more joyful. Like the big thing is the race, but that's going to come regardless. Like, and I'm not going to win it. Like I'm not fast, but I'm going to finish it and I'm going to have fun. And that to me is like the hallmark of living a life. It's like, I'm going to have my parents at the finish line or cheering me on and I'm going to like enjoy myself and have a really funny looking hat <laughs> while I do it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. There was just, that's so good. Zach and I both, uh, both have been runners and have had different, different versions of love affairs with, with, uh, <laughs> the sport or the grueling hobby of running. But a friend of mine just, there was just the summer fast here in, in Vancouver, 10K, and he posted on his Instagram and it was like 61 career weight races zero zero wins but like no end in sight you know because it's not about that and i think that 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 story you just shared and honestly like the whole work that you've created in in tracking giants is is such a holistic piece where it's you know you, you obviously like started out looking for the thing looking for the big trees and that was the whole foray into this adventure and this this artistic not even project, but artistic way of living uh, that you're that you're embodying has created is is not just looking for the thing. Maybe that's the thin edge of the wedge, the thing that gets you in the door. But then realizing, pun intended, the forest for the trees is yeah. what's so beautiful. And, and if I may, I just love I love how you open the book. These fucking <laughs> trees. 
These fucking trees. Like, yes. It's like they're everywhere. They're in the way. Right. When I read that. Everywhere. I was like, nowhere what? at once. Yeah, yeah. Right. They're all, if they could all just get out of the way so I could find the big, the champion Western hemlock, life would be so much better. And then yeah. in your chapter 11, towards the end of the book, Secular Pilgrimage, you write, by looking for one tree, I began to see the forest. Mm-hmm. And those bookends, I mean, lovely, lovely writing. <laughs> but like the, those bookends so really just like speak so perfectly of your journey of like seeing, you know, for many of us, it might not be trees, but it might be the thing that's in the way of the thing that we want to do. And then coming to recognize that all of it is working together and we need all of it mm-hmm. and we will come to appreciate all of it is like truly such a transcendent lesson that goes beyond our forest, goes beyond your personal journey. Um, and is something that I think anyone anywhere can take away. And I mean, yeah, I, I just really appreciate what you've created and, and the stories, like, like I say, that you've captured with so much levity and brilliance, but also like, stark and important reminders of of ways of living and how important it is to care for ourselves to care for our planet these ecosystems and to be involved and invested in the world around us is truly awesome so thank you thanks so much um i've got a couple as we kind of land this this conversation i've got a couple small questions and then we'll make room for another conversation down the line but um one is like a compliment and a question. You're such a good writer. You've been an editor for so long. What took you so long to uh, <laughs> to write to write your own book? Because it seems like this is something so natural to yourself, where you've been kind of championing these other writers for so long. It it seems like due time that you yourself are the champion. What what took so long for for you to make your own mark as a as an author to yourself? Uh, it's a great question, and it's it's one that um, it's hard to answer because editing. A lot of people, and I'm not saying that you think this way, but a lot of people think of editors as kind of like would be writers or failed writers. And editing is it's I've I've only realized it's in the last few years is like editing is its own unique art form. Yes. So I've been editing for so long, and I feel like it's kind of eaten up a part of my brain, which is the writing brain, but it's different. It's just like a different way of looking at words. Um, and the, the short answer is I just didn't have time to right. write a book and of I course. didn't have an idea. And I've been really busy. <laughs> I've edited a ton of books in my career and I really love that. And that's that's a role that I love being in is serving writers and readers um, and championing ideas of other writers and really co-creating the book to be the best it can be. Um, but the curse of being editors that you look for ideas everywhere. You're like yeah. reading a magazine article. You're like, Oh, this could be a book. Like if they just took this piece and expanded it, like the golden spruce, it started as a magazine article, yeah. it started as a New Yorker article and then became a book, which is a great editorial decision. <laughs> and, um, so when I was starting my project, I was a few months into it and thought, this is a book like I can see that this is a book and that was both thrilling and scary to me because writing a book is incredibly difficult and it's it's something that most people want to do like if you pulled something like 80% of people they all think they have a book in them and as I always say like it's true that 100% of people have like a spooky skeleton inside them but very few people have a book that like that is easy to pull out. It's just so hard to write a book. 
this is a, a curse against my own editing business, but it's like when people say, I want to write a book. I'm like, why would you? Like, why would you want to? It's so hard. Like, I can think of better things to do. And like, this, I was running this morning. I was like, I can think of better things to do with my time than run up this stupid hill. You know, <laughs> that's, that's writing. Mm -hmm. And we do it for a reason beyond the book, right? I like, I run because I like the feeling of having run. And then I'll feel proud and I'll feel like less anxious and my legs will feel tired in a good way. And so when I'm writing, I'm kind of getting to the same feeling of having written. And, but when I, when I started this book, I was, I was like really nervous of it. And I, I did this thing that is common for writers is I made it way too big back to this idea of bigness and like way too ambitious for its own good. Um, I look back at my book proposal now and I just really laugh at it and groan and cry a little bit <laughs> because I was like, okay, like the book about trees is the golden spruce. Like it's the quintessential West Coast tree book. I can't touch that book. No one can do it better than John Valiant. I'm going to do it 43 times. <laughs> I'm going to write about the forest and like not just Haida Gwaii, but like every forest. And like, <clears throat> excuse me, all 14 biogeoclimatic zones in BC. And like, it's ludicrous. It's way too big. And so I really struggled um, with writing this book. And you said something in that question. It was like, oh, it was like, it seems so effortless or whatever. Like, no, it's like, it was a really hard project because I was using my weekends to write, to, to look for trees. And then I didn't have the weekends to write. So I felt like I was constantly failing at the writing and the tree tracking. Like, it was very annoying and existential. It's like, I'm not getting anywhere. And I went through a breakup, and then I moved from, from Vancouver to the Gulf Islands. And it's just like a lot of life stuff. And I just was not doing any writing. And I was totally that person crying on the phone to my editor, being like, I can't make my deadline. <laughs> and she said, we'll move it a year. I was like, thank you. And it's like, it just is a disaster. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm supposed to, like, know what I'm doing because I'm an editor and I'm really not doing well. And the answer, like, the way through for me was um, Seth Rogen. <laughs> it's another Vancouver boy, right? But... Um, Seth Rogen, like, I really like his comedy and I really like his movies and he just is who he is. And he's like, I like weed. I like silly comedy. I, I have this deep level that people don't quite see, but it's there. And he has this incredible work ethic. And he wrote this book called Yearbook. And it's this really, really funny memoir of growing up in the lower mainland. And I listened to the audiobook while I was packing up my apartment in East Van. And then I listened to the audiobook again when I was like setting up my house in the Gulf Islands and I thought okay like this book is hilarious I'm finding so much to relate to here like this is actually the approach I need to take to this tree project it's way too serious for its own good no wonder I can't finish it I'm just writing about failure but failure is kind of funny like if you look at it another way it's really funny that I'm trying to find trees <laughs> It's such a silly hobby and, and when you look at it in a light way. And I like that sense of humor. So when I just eased up, it's again, like that idea of standing in front of trees and asking them to change your life. Like I was trying to make this project and this huge like meditation on climate change and deforestation. It's so depressing to write about that stuff. And I didn't want to read about that. I was like, why am I writing a book I don't want to read? 
So then I made it accessible by using like kind of the Seth Rogen approach, which is jokes and cultural references. And a lot of my friends who are like me, like these creative nerdy types, um, are like really surprised by the book because like, oh, it's actually like really accessible. And I worried that it was going to be really dense um, and like you're this adventurer and like they felt that they wouldn't be able to relate to me, but it's actually just like a nerd in the woods who's like wants to go home and watch the BBC. (laughs) 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 Like that's, that's just like how I live my life. So like full props to Seth Rogen for like getting me through, (laughs) he didn't know it, but like getting me through that hard time and actually making the book into what it is now. Um, Like I, the accessibility thing is, so many, um, so much of the forest is dense unless you can find the path in. So the path in became like jokes and then references to other cultural, um, like pop culture and books that have really become the giants in my life and different artists. Mm. Um, so yeah, makes the forest accessible. Yeah, totally. Well, I think you nailed it. It's like very, very well written, very masterfully written, and it is. It's it's such an it's such a joy, and I had a, often a big smile or even a, you know, the, the chuckle to myself while I was, while I was reading it. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, very good, very good. So, are there uh, are there more books uh, in your future? What what's what's next for you? Um, what's next for me is there's a lot of memoir that I cut out of Trekking Giants, yeah. um, like Growing Up in Surrey, which, you know, everyone wants to read that memoir, right? Yes. Growing Up in Surrey. Um, so I might, I might do that one, but I'm working on a novel at the moment, which is great because the curse of Trekking Giants is there, it was so much fact-checking and research involved in it. It's re- it actually is very policy-dense, um, but it's kind of hidden, again, behind the jokes. Um, and it really like broke my brain trying to do all that. So I, I want to just play with the facts a bit in a novel. Mm. Yeah. Have you read um, or listened to Born to Run? Uh, I, I, I started. I haven't finished it yet. That's that's. Um, I feel like that's the like accompanying version to what your book is to trees to to running. So if you're if you're nice. fall, falling into running, I um, when I first got into running myself, I listened to that one as an audio book, and it would just kind of like kind of um, validate kind of all the things that I was going for. Made, made running seem even more grand and, okay. and wonderful while I was well, pursuing it. I will listen to it for sure, especially if the audiobook has the cadence of Saturday Night by the Bay City Rollers that are <laughs> golden. That's like my perfect running pace. <laughs> yes, yes. That's awesome. Well, I'm at- <laughs> Amanda, thank you so much. Um, you know, we've got a question that we ask all of our, our guests to close out, and I'll let, uh, I'll let Dean bring us there. But I just wanted to thank you for your presence and your time and, and for sharing this adventure with all of us. Uh, you did bring a lot of joy and lightheartedness and accessibility into adventure and into the forest. I think a lot of books in this genre can be heavy or or even depressing at times uh but you brought so many smiles uh to both uh, myself and dean and i'm sure anybody else that reads the book it will fill them with with joy and and uh desire to start their own adventures so i just wanted to thank you for creating this this beautiful book and thank you for for joining us today for this conversation um dean you want to bring it home my friend yeah sounds good um yeah thank you so much we we call the podcast a little more good because that's like what we wanted to see and do and be about in the world. Um, 
And we love to hear from our guests, like what does that phrase mean to you when you hear it? A little more good. Um, a little more good for me really relates to what we're talking about as like starting now. And if you can make these small incremental shifts um, and it doesn't need to add up to like atomic habits level, but just know that you can be a little better. Like you can be a little kinder or you can practice more boundaries. Like if you struggle with boundaries, like today is the day to start, you know, like um, it's just because you're one thing now doesn't mean that you can't be a better version of it. And the writer Ashley C. Ford said, um, you're better than the worst thing you've ever done, right? Mm. So you can be a little more good than that and then keep going. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. I think, um, you know, we often, experiences are the stories that we tell of them and, and sometimes we can get stuck on these versions that are less than our best self. So I think that gives us permission to to see our own stories a little differently. So thank Absolutely. you. Thank you, Amanda. And, um, you know, I hope to connect for, for a walk next time you're in Vancouver sometime. Or no, I'd on, love on that. Or Islands. And we can look for some champions or some princes and princesses that are uh, <laughs> yeah. awaiting their turn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Amazing. All right. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Amanda Lewis tracking those giants in search of the champion trees, finding, you know, even more than what she set out to find and, and shared it for us in her book. So love that conversation. Love the book. Be sure to check it out. Tracking Giants by Amanda Lewis. You can get it on BC Fairies. Yeah, I know. That's kind of like pretty iconic. If you're if you're on the BC Fairies uh, library there, or the, the bookstore, I feel like you're like have raised to the ranks of yes. legendary local authors. So it's true. be sure to check out Amanda Lewis, amandalewis.org, where you can find uh, more about her book, about all of the books that she worked on as an editor, which was her previous kind of role in the, in the book world. She's worked on amazing books, a lot of award-winning books. Uh, her blog is amazing too. She's got really great content. She even has some amazing playlists about trees. So amandalewis.org check it out there you go if you've made it this far we just want to say thank you time and attention is one of our greatest commodities we appreciate it if you could do us the solid of uh, sharing this episode with someone that you think would enjoy it that'd be amazing also leave us a review wherever you listen to these podcasts it just helps the algorithms push us up and share the goodness that we're trying to create here uh, you can also support the show's sponsors that's awesome Caldera Lab and AG1 we'd appreciate that and know that those things are wonderful and we use them every day and we love them very much and outside of that thank you thank you for your time your attention we appreciate it until next week Stay good, y'all. Peace.